In our study of the people whom Jesus, in whom Jesus took an interest, we have seen him work miracles through their faith in him. And you know, when I look at what's happening in the lives of people today with all the darkness and despair, folks, I think we need some of God's miracles today. I do. I would love to see God pour out his spirit one more time before he returns and change this nation and change this world. But for that to happen, it must begin with one or a few. I believe that. And so from what we've seen in our study, miracles which impact many often begin small with the faith and obedience of one. And today we see that truth laid out in what I consider one of the greatest miracles of the Bible, certainly one of my favorites. And in this story today, we see how Jesus took something small and relatively insignificant and turned it into a blessing for thousands. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. And let me just say, I, I just looked at the back of the sanctuary and we have a miracle today. Carol Ward is with us today. Amen. We will praise God for that miracle, won't we? Hallelujah. Carol, we love you. We have prayed for you all and over and over, and we thank God for you being here. I hope you just love it today. I hope you have a great time today in the Lord. You're, you're a miracle, and we praise God for you. Person of interest, John chapter 6. Now, I just want you to follow along with me in, your, in the Word, and let's see what God would say to us today, because I believe all these people who Jesus encountered are people just like us. It happened a long time ago, but I can see myself in these, in these people, and I hope you can as well. Let's just pray together and start with prayer, and then we'll get right into the Word. Father in heaven, we love you. We praise you. God, I don't think I could have had anything that would have blessed me more today and excited me more than to see you do a miracle in our midst <laughs> with Carol here, Father. We, we praise you. That's been my prayer for a miracle, Lord, in her life, that she could get up and come to church again. Here she is. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our, hearing our prayers, for her family that have worked with us. This has been tough. But God, she's here. And I pray it won't be the last time she'll be able to just keep on coming and walk. And she'll get up and walk again. God, we, we ask for that. We believe that and your power to do that. We pray, Father, today our hearts and minds need to be open to what the Holy Spirit would say to us. There's something about this passage of Scripture that is for us, some truth in it that's going to touch every one of us. And Lord, if we're listening to you, it'll make a difference. We can see a miracle in our own lives. I believe that. So help us pay attention to you today, Lord, and hear what you would say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the story we have here is the feeding of, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, and it's found in all four of the Gospels. In fact, it's besides the resurrection of Jesus, it's the only miracle that Jesus did that is found in all four of the Gospels. So it's pretty important, wouldn't you agree? In each of these stories, the Gospel writers actually said the same thing. There's usually a lot of variation, but 
In this miracle, there's very little variation between the gospel writers. And the reason I chose this miracle and the passage from John is because John, in his passage, in his retelling of the story, shows us a person of interest. A young boy, the Bible calls him a lad, a young boy who had come to see Jesus and who turned out to be an instrument of his miraculous power. Look at verse 1 with me, chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Let me just explain that to you. The Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Well, the Sea of Galilee is the Greek term, and the Sea of Tiberias is the Roman way of saying. See, the Romans, when the emperor Tiberius finished his big city, on the, near the Sea of Galilee, they rena- the Romans renamed the sea the Sea of Tiberias. So the setting here is the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This miracle took place after the calming of the storm with his disciples, after the healing of the demon-possessed man, after the healing of the woman with the blood disease, and after the raising of Jairus' daughter, After all that activity, Jesus and his disciples were tired. Luke sheds some light on where they went after all all of those miracles. Luke 9 says, And the apostles, when they had returned, Jesus had sent them out with the gospel of the kingdom, just like we go out sowing those seeds of the kingdom. And the apostles, when they had returned, told Jesus all that they had done, and then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place, a deserted place, we say a desert place, kind of a barren place, belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And it was a place where there was some kind of mountainous terrain there. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed Jesus and he received them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of his healing. After Jesus called his disciples to follow him, they began a three-year mission filled with activity. They traveled constantly. They learned quickly. They worked tirelessly because that's what Jesus did. And they had joined Jesus. Everything that would happen with the church would happen because these disciples had followed Jesus and saw his miracles and believed in his power. And they believed that Jesus could take what they had and use it to change the world. What he did that day in this passage certainly changed the world of those who were with him. We see in verses 1 through 3 again, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Jesus knew what lay ahead for his disciples. I mean, they would walk with him, watch him, listen, and learn from him, and then they would cry out in sorrow as their Savior and teacher was brutally murdered on the cross. This is why Jesus took them aside to this mountain, to help them get some rest before the fast pace that following Jesus would require. And what they learned 
was a lesson about what Jesus can do when we put ourselves in his hands. And from today's miracle, the person of interest, from the person of interest we see in this passage, we learn some valuable lessons about trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus. Now, first of all, uh, listen, when we need a miracle, and we, we need miracles in our lives, don't you, don't you like to see God work in your life? I mean, really, amen? Well, when you need a miracle, first of all, number one, we can trust that Jesus has a selfless compassion. Does Jesus want to work a miracle in your life? Well, let's, let's, let's look and see what, ha- what happened here. You see, imagine being in the multitude that day. You have run by foot. The gospel writer said they ran by foot from all the cities to see Jesus. You, have, you are in that crowd. You have run by foot to see Jesus. You have stood all day pressing others. You're probably in the middle of a pack of people that are all over you. Perhaps just for an opportunity to see Jesus. To hear him speak, perhaps hoping that you could get close enough to Jesus that he could touch you and give you a miracle. Meet your need all day in the sun, all day without food. And by evening, in that crowd, you're exhausted. Have you ever, now have you ever thought of how our bodies tire, not only physically, but emotionally? Have you ever felt drained? Well, Jesus cared about all of that. He cares about what we face. He loves us. Jesus cared about each and every one of these people in this multitude. He cares about you. Folks, there is never a moment when Jesus is not personally concerned about you. He cares about your physical needs. He cares about your emotional needs. He cares about your financial needs, your relational needs, your spiritual needs. Jesus Loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loved you before you were born, and He's going to love you after you die. He loves you enough to rejoice over you when you are enjoying His blessings, and He loves you enough to offer forgiveness and compassion when you are rejecting Him for something else. Paul said, For I am persuaded, read this verse with me, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the what? The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are at your best and when you are at your worst, Jesus loves you the same. Nothing could ever make Him love you more and nothing could ever make Him love you less. His love is unchanging and infinite. When you're following Jesus and obeying His every word, Jesus loves you. When you are at your weakest and you've given to Satan's temptations, Jesus loves you. His heart is love. His nature is love. And that's why we can trust Him to show us compassion. God will never get tired of hearing your cry for mercy. King David prayed, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. You know what Jesus is? Full of compassion. 
which means his compassion is self, selfless. He's full of compassion. Sometimes when we show compassion, we have kind of an ulterior motive. Perhaps we forgive others so they'll forgive us, or, we do, or we'll forgive others, show compassion, and help others so they'll help us. But not so with Jesus. Jesus offers us compassion not because he wants something from us in return, but just because he loves us and he's full of selfless compassion. Jesus proved that when he suffered and died on the old rugged cross. Paul said, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? It means that when we were at our worst, when we were the enemies of God, because we, because we were more interested in serving ourselves than serving Him, even when we were not seeking God, Jesus still died for us. Remember, when He hung on the cross, Jesus knew who we would be. He knew who you would be. He knew all about you before you were ever born, thousands of years before you were ever born. He knew about you. He knew how you would sin against him. He knew how you would turn him away. He knew how you would reject him until one day you would hear his voice and his knock at your heart's door and you would open it and you would receive him as Savior. Even when you were his enemy, he still died for you. He died as your divine blood eternal sacrifice. For you and for all of us, for the whole world. He looked down through the centuries and he saw that one day, you, me, we would hear the gospel. We would call upon him to forgive us and he would show compassion to us. That's what he did in our story. He showed compassion to a worn out, hungry people. Mark tells us in Mark six thirty four. When Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. John went on to say it was the time of the Passover. And the Passover celebration was not just, and you, you, we've studied that, but it was not just about the lamb's blood on the door, not just about that night when the in Egypt, when the firstborn died in every house except where the blood was applied. It was not just about the lamb, it was about also God's provision as the shepherd of Israel. All throughout the history of Israel, God had been their shepherd taking care of them. And when he delivered them from Egypt and they went out into the, a desert place, they were hungry. And what did God do? When his people were hungry, he fed them with bread or with manna from heaven. And so here we have Jesus now. A thousand years, 1,300 years later, here we have Jesus. And he's meeting in this place and all these people are there. And what's happening? They are hungry. These people, Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Some of these were Gentiles, but the Jews, the people who had the law of Moses given to them, these people observing the Passover, 
They were like sheep without a shepherd, Mark said. Why? Why were these people with such a history so far removed from the shepherd of Israel? Perhaps we could say the same, ask the same for us today in our culture, in our, in our America. How could we, a nation formed upon the faith of people who risked everything to worship God, a, a, a nation built upon people, the faith of people who fought and died so we could have a church like this and preach the word as I'm preaching today. How could we, this nation, a nation whose motto is in God we trust, a nation who pledges one nation under God, how could we have moved so far from our faith, from, the shep- from our shepherd, good shepherd? How, how could America, one nation under God, support people who teach that there is no God? That right and wrong is what culture dictates. And that there's no need for faith in God, an antiquated God or the Bible anymore. How can we have become a nation where it's acceptable to teach about all these things, you know, gay marriage and transgenderism and all these things? How, how is it that we've come to that place where you can talk about anything else in, in a public arena but not God, in a classroom, but not about Jesus? You can even, you know, you can talk about Satan, you can talk about Allah, you can talk about Allah, but not Jesus. How have we come so far away from our good shepherd? It's because we are, we, like these ancient people in our story, are sheep without a shepherd, or at least we're without the great shepherd. We have followed lesser shepherds for so long, for I guess nearly a century, we have followed lesser shepherds so long that we have become weary in our faith. And what we really need, folks, what we all need, is a return to the great shepherd, to the Jesus we see in this passage of Scripture. The good news is, when we turn to Him, He has compassion upon us, and He forgives us. In the Old Testament, God told his people, God the shepherd of Israel said, If my people, read this one with me, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Do, you, do we need that? Amen? In the New Testament now. That was Old Testament. Jesus, what did he say in the New Testament? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and no one can pluck them out of my hand. That's what Jesus said. He is the shepherd. The shepherd that gives us everything we need. Like David said, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Everything you need is in the hand of Jesus. Everything, you find everything you need in Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want anything. I, have, I shall not lack for anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And that's, What a good shepherd does. He leads and feeds. 
And that's what was happening in the desert where a bunch of hungry people gathered to hear Jesus. They found a good shepherd who loved them, healed them, taught them, and fed them. So first, we are, we are encouraged. We know we can have a miracle when we can trust that Jesus has a selfless compassion. But secondly, we can trust that Jesus has a perfect solution. Now, when Jesus walked on the earth, whatever he did, he had planned to do thousands of years earlier. Nothing ever took Jesus by surprise, not then, not now. All those people he met, he had planned to meet. All those miracles he worked, he had planned long before they happened. And this one was no exception. Notice with me, verses 4 through 6. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew exactly what he would do. You know, while all the disciples were present that day, it was Philip to whom Jesus addressed this uh, question. And John says Philip was being tested. (laughs) Jesus asked Philip, now let's follow along here with me. Jesus said to ask Philip, where can we buy food for all these people? And I want you to notice Philip's response. Look at verse 7. Philip's response. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. When Jesus asked Philip, where, where can we buy bread? Uh, Philip's mind started working like a calculator. Let's put Philip's answer to into a modern context. According to Philip's calculation, it would take 200 denarii. A, a denarii was one, it was a Roman coin, and it was one day's worth of wages. Okay? So it was what a person earned in one day. So according to Philip, it would take 200 days worth of wages. And that would not even buy a little bit of bread for these people. So by today's standards, it would cost more than $8,000 for everyone to have just a crumb of bread. Now, do you see how Philip's perspective is small? Do you see that? Jesus said, where can we buy food for these people? Uh, and Philip went to calculating. Uh, there's no way, Jesus. That's what he's saying. You see how small he is, he, his, little, his, his uh, mentality is, his faith is? Just, there's, there's no way. Uh, he's trying to figure out how to give every person a tiny crust of bread, just a crumb for each person. That's a small solution, isn't it? In fact, it's no solution at all. If you've ever been really hungry and somebody said, gave you a crumb to eat, the need here was to feed the hunger, to solve the problem of hunger for thousands of people. And a few crumbs of bread was not going to, follow, not going to solve that problem. Not even $8,000 worth of loaves of sandwich bread would solve that problem. Isn't this something how we often try to limit God when it comes to meeting needs? I mean, really, just think about it a minute. We try to work everything out, and then we tell God, God, this is my need, and this is what you need to do to work it out. 
That's right. Now, what usually happens when we take that approach, like Philip, you know, what usually happens is that we try on our own, and we fail, and we become frustrated, and then we give up, or we cry out to God in desperation. You know what it sounds like? It sounds kind of like what those disciples, including Philip, had already been through, right? On the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm arises, and they're, what are they doing? They are rowing with those oars, and they are moving that sail, and they are bailing water. They're doing everything they can to try to stay alive in a storm, and they exhausted every bit of their strength and their knowledge and their, their, their energy, and they are exhausted. They're hungry. They're hungry for a miracle. And yet they did it all, they did it all themselves. And where, what's Jesus doing asleep? Why didn't they go back there when the, the storm came up and said, Jesus, there's a storm. Will you do, can you do something? Will you do something about this? Why did they wait till they exhausted all their energy? Because that's just like, maybe that's our human nature. We just got to fi- fix it all out and work. Folks, uh, we're just not miracle workers. I'm sorry. We're just not. I mean, we're, we're limited in our flesh and blood. And, you know, our energy, and we, we wear out, and we get tired, and we get hungry, and we're weary, we just exhausted. And that's what those disciples went through, and it was after they tried and tried and did everything under their own power, and they were still about to sink, that they ran and got Jesus. They ran to Jesus, and when they awakened him, they didn't tell him what he needed to do. They just said, we're, di- we're dying And Jesus got up and miraculously calmed the storm, and it was the perfect solution, wasn't it? Let me ask you something. Do you think Jesus knew that that storm was going to rise when he got in the boat with his disciples? What do you think? Do you think Jesus knew what those disciples were going to do out in the middle of that storm? Do you think Jesus knew what he was going to do when he got up? Absolutely. He knew exactly what he was going to do because he's the perfect miracle worker, the perfect Savior, the perfect God, and every solution God has for your problem is perfect. It might not be exactly like you think it ought to be. It might not be exactly in the time you think it ought to be. But Jesus knows every aspect of your need He knows every moment of your life before it happens. Many people don't believe in an all-knowing God, but I believe, I believe, I believe. To the prophet Jeremiah, God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. When did he do that for Isaiah? Before he was born. The psalmist said, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You understand my thoughts before I even think them. You understand that? You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it all about it, Lord. Before I speak a word, he knows I'm already going to say it. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Did you get that? All my days were written in your book. His plan book for my life. You know, teachers are getting ready to 
to have a new year at school. And do you know what they are supposed to do? They are supposed to have a lesson plan. They are supposed to have a written lesson plan. Now, if, you know, a teacher, listen, a teacher that has taught a year and has already written down, the first year's the hardest, you understand, when you're teaching. Because I've taught school a long time. And the first year's hard because you have to write down your plans for the year. They're brand new to you. And like when you're up in the upper grade, you, well, even the lower grades, you've got all these subjects. You have to write a lesson plan for all the subjects for a whole year. But once you get through that year, guess what? It's done. And the book is there. And guess what? God, God didn't wait till you were born. God wrote a lesson plan for you before you were ever born, before you even thought of. God had a lesson plan. He put it in his book. <laughs> Whatever book that is. He put it in the book of, life, of your life, your life story. And he knew all about what was going to happen to you. And if you're going through a struggle right now, he knew that was going to happen. Nothing takes him by surprise. God knows all about us. He always has known about all about us, about all our days, about all our actions and our words and even our thoughts before we were even thought of. And that's the omniscience of God. And that's why His purpose, His lifelong plan for us is absolutely flawless. It's perfect. He knows what we need before we need it. He knows what we will do before we do it. He knows what will happen before it happens. And that's why we can trust Jesus in every circumstance and for every need. And I know that in our limited ability to understand God, there are things that happen that make us say, why, why, why? Folks, God's not afraid of your whys. Some people say, oh, don't question God. God is not afraid for you to ask him why. God has big shoulders. And he can handle it. And you can ask him why all day long. And sometimes we'll never know till we get to heaven. That old hymn I used to sing, we used to sing, I used to sing it. We will understand it better by and by. One day you're going to understand why trials and tribulations and suffering came upon you. One day you're going to understand why death took somebody you loved. One day you'll understand, but right now, right now you can't. And Jesus doesn't mind you asking him why. But what he does mind is you doubting him. He wants you to trust him in every circumstance for every need because his solution is perfect. Can you believe that? Philip's plan was not a very good plan. What did he say? Hmm. Well, the 200 days wages, we don't have enough. Don't have enough money. All right, well, then came Andrew with his plan. Let's look at Andrew's plan. Verses 8, 8 and 9. Not my son Andrew. I'm talking about Andrew the disciple here. John chapter 6, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. You know, this is why I think, let me just start it. Give you a little gold nugget. won't cost anything extra. Listen to this. I think the reason John, uh, uh, I, 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 think, I think that, I think that the reason that this, uh, that Andrew is mentioned here, 
is because this is Simon Peter's brother, you see. Simon Peter's brother. Simon Peter was there, and Simon Peter was kind of the leader of those disciples, especially after Jesus went into heaven. And I think, I think the, the reason that this boy is mentioned here is because it was Andrew, Peter's brother, that found him, you see. And none of the, none of the other writers even written, wrote it down, but John thought it was important for us to know that Andrew found somebody. And Andrew, look at this. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Uh, when Jesus, listen to him. When Jesus looked at this multitude, he saw a large group of tired and hungry people. When he asked his disciples for solutions, Philip said, we don't have enough money. And Andrew said, we don't have enough food. That's what happened. So what did Jesus do? Verse 10, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about five Thousand. Now Mark described the arrangement Jesus made for the people. He described the order. Verses Mark 6, 39 and 40. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in ranks, like in groups of hundreds and fifties. You know, there could be several reasons Jesus had these people arranged in this way. Perhaps Jesus wanted to make it easier for the disciples to count the number of people and write about the magnitude of the miracle. Or more likely, Jesus wanted to make certain that every person was taken care of, that no one was left out. He loved each one of these people. The, the disciples followed Jesus' instructions. He organized the multitude for the miracles they were about to receive. So, so listen, we can trust Jesus has a selfless compassion. And wants to help us. We can trust that Jesus has a perfect solution. And he can help us. If we want a miracle, we have to trust Jesus. But finally, from this story, we know that we can trust that Jesus has a miraculous solution. Sal a, a, a miraculous salvation. Salvation. Now, the word salvation means deliverance. And these people, these thousands of people, had a lot of different needs. But they all had one thing in common. They were all hungry. They were all hungry, and they needed deliverance from that hunger. They had been with Jesus all day. They had heard him teach. They had seen his power heal their sicknesses. But after a whole day of this, they were all very hungry. The Bible says it was getting toward evening. So Jesus did the miraculous. He fed them all. Philip said, we don't have enough money. Andrew said, we don't have enough food. What did Jesus say? Tell them to sit down. I know exactly what to do. And what did he do? He gave them a miraculous salvation. He delivered them. He led them and he fed them. Now, where did Jesus get the food to feed more than 5,000 people? 5,000 men plus women and children, the Bible says. Where did he get the food to feed more than 10,000 people. Well, that's one of the wonderful truths of this story. Philip, who said, we don't have enough money. Andrew, who said, we don't have enough food. These were not the persons of interest on that day. In that multitude of thousands, the person of interest was a boy with a lunch. 
In verse 9, we read that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. What do we know about this boy? Nothing. <laughs> None of the gospel writers tell us anything about him. Only John mentions him and says he had five barley loaves. That's the bread of the poor. And two small fish, and the emphasis is on small. That's all we know about him. We don't know anything about him. But this boy's lunch became the instrument Jesus used to feed this multitude of people. It really wasn't his lunch. It was his heart. That's what made this boy a person of interest to Jesus. Because his heart wanted to give everything to Jesus. You see? We don't know if the boy came to Jesus and handed him his bread and fish. We don't know if the boy simply gave it to Andrew. Andrew said, I'll take it to him. But somehow, this food was given to Jesus, and Jesus knew who gave it. And this boy was the one who gave it to Jesus. Before he gave him his lunch, you, you know, you understand what he gave him, right? What did he give him before he gave him his lunch? His heart. Verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to his disciples and to the disciples to those who were sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Wow. <laughs> Jesus took that sack lunch, and he began to break that bread, and every time he broke a loaf, you know what happened? It was, it was whole again. He broke a piece and it was whole again. He broke a piece and it was whole again. He broke a piece and it was whole again. He broke it and he broke it and every time he broke it, it was whole again. And the fish, every bit of fish, every one, and it, it was a whole fish again. Broke the fish. More fish. And that went on and on and on. I don't know how long it took to feed all these people. But from that small amount of food... Jesus fed everyone and had his disciples collect the leftovers. Now, that's a miracle, folks, isn't it? Because the Bible says that they ate as much as they wanted. And it all started with a boy who gave his lunch to Jesus. And listen, to make sure that everyone knew that this truly was a miracle, and not just a trick, not just a hypnosis or some kind of mental persuasion where Jesus had this spell where everybody thought they were filled with food, okay? They thought their hunger went away. Well, just to make sure that everybody knew this was a real miracle, that's why Jesus said, collect the leftovers, men, and look what happened. Verse 12 and 13. So when they were filled... Jesus said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. And therefore they gathered them up and filled up how many baskets? Twelve baskets. Twelve baskets. With the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Twelve baskets. Why twelve baskets? Because there's 12 disciples. And each disciple had a basket full of food to take home. Jesus made sure he took care of them also. What a miracle. A miracle that met the need of probably at least 10,000 people. Now how many loaves did Jesus start with? And how many fish 
And how many people got fed? Over 10,000 people were fed. The, now let me tell you what happened here. The disciples, they saw the size of the need and the smallness of the resources available. While Jesus saw the size of the need and the greatness of God's power to deliver. It's believing in God's greatness which requires our faith. We will never see miracles happen in our lives until we trust Jesus with everything, until we are willing to give Jesus everything, even our unbelief. You know, often we consider ourselves insignificant, not valuable to God. I wonder if this, little boy, if this boy in the story felt the same way. He was young, he didn't have much to offer Jesus, but he gave Jesus everything he had. When we give Jesus everything we have, Jesus can take what we have and use it to change the lives of others. And that's what happened in this story with this boy. His little lunch, and it was a little lunch, in the hand of Jesus changed the lives of thousands of people. This boy and his lunch were so insignificant to the people that, what did Andrew say? We got a boy here with five loaves and two fish, but what's, all, what's that? That's nothing compared to the need. That's what Andrew said. But from five loaves and two fish placed in the hand of Jesus, the people on that day got, saw a miracle. They got their bellies filled and their faith made strong. Who but God could feed 10,000 people with one boy's little lunch? In the hand of Jesus, what started small grew until it changed the lives of thousands. And that's our faith lesson today. Faith lesson. When we trust, read it with me. When we trust Jesus with everything, he can do anything. Amen? Say it again. When we trust Jesus with everything, he can do anything. And when this boy gave his food to Jesus, he was expressing his thanksgiving to the one from whom all blessings flow. He was, he was, he was hungry also, wasn't he? Don't you think the boy was hungry? See, we overlook that, don't we? He was starving. He was hungry, just like everybody. But he gave his food to Jesus anyway. And he trusted Jesus to take care of him along with everybody else. He didn't have any preconceived notions about what Jesus would do with the food. He didn't try to talk Jesus into a miracle. We don't even know if this boy met Jesus personally, but Jesus knew him just like he knows each of us. And because of one boy's faith and obedience... Thousands were delivered and had their faith strengthened. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. Then those men, which, these, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Those who were part of this miracle, who saw it happen before their eyes, were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the next king of Israel. And they wanted to take Jesus and exalt him as their king. He, that was not why he came. He came to give his life for us on the cross. He had to die. But that's what miracles ought to do, friends. Miracles should cause us to exalt Jesus in our own lives and before others. 
That boy who gave Jesus everything had a great testimony. Can you imagine for the rest of his life, this boy, as he grew up, do you, do you know, just think about, I imagine he might say, he could tell people. Do you remember when Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 10,000 people? Well, those were my five loaves and two fish. It was my food to eat, but I thought Jesus was more important than anything I had. So I gave everything I had to Jesus, and when I did, Jesus did a miracle with the food I had. What do you have that you might consider insignificant? Is it your talent, your money, your ability, your doubt, your speech? Whatever you have placed in the hand of Jesus can change the world. His power is that great. It changed the world for the people of that day. They came to Jesus for healing. They were needy people, but they left a filled people. Filled with faith in Jesus. Filled with the truth that whatever we give to Jesus, He can multiply and use it to deliver others. Faith that Jesus is the great shepherd. See, to, to see a miracle, we have to trust Jesus. You don't have to tell Him what to do, how to do. You just have to take what you have of your life and give it to Jesus. There was a little boy that sat at his grandmother's feet while she was doing some needlepoint. Stitch by stitch, Grandma pushed the needle down through the cloth and back up again. I used to watch my mother do it. This little boy sat there and looked up in amazement trying to figure out what his grandma was doing. What is that, Grandma? All that thread under there. You'll see soon enough, Grandma replied. But I want to see what is now, the little boy persisted. It's not done yet, Grandma said. Well, it looks like a mess from where I'm sitting, Grandma. Grandma just kept stitching down and up. That's an ugly picture, Grandma. It's just a bunch of dark threads and messy knots. Nobody would want that hanging in their house. Well, eventually, Grandma finished her stitching. She looked down at her grandson. She said, well, when something beautiful is being made, sometimes the work doesn't look very pretty at first. There are dark threads and light-colored threads, but each one has a place in the overall picture. When you look at it from your side, it might not look very pretty. But when you get to look at it from the other side, you see how it was crafted into something beautiful. With that, Grandma turned the needlepoint over for her grandson to see that finished product, and it was beautiful. Friends, from this earthly life, we cannot see the big picture God sees. Sometimes we might, might, we might not think He's doing anything about our needs. We might think our lives are small and our needs just not worthy of His attention. But let me tell you that Jesus loves you. He loves us all. He cares about everything that happens in our lives. When He died on the cross, He suffered and died for everyone and for you. When He rose from the dead, it was to give life to the world and give you eternal life. So everything Jesus did, He did for us. Sometimes we can't see what He's doing. We don't understand. We don't understand why He doesn't hurry up and do something or fix something. Life's just a mess for us, like Grandma's needlepoint. But when we trust Him, when we trust His selfless compassion, we trust He has the power of a perfect solution, and we trust His miraculous salvation, then we can give Him everything. And when we give Him everything, that's when He can do a miracle in our lives. Would you bow with me? You might not understand what's going on. It might be a mess right now for you, but 
you can't see what he sees. Maybe you're, all you're seeing is the need. He sees something more than that. In this story, do you see yourself? Do you see, are you like uh, Philip? We don't have enough money. Or you're like Andrew, we don't have enough food or stuff. Or you like this boy, this person of interest who gave Jesus everything. You know, do you know what Jesus wants from you? Is there something you have in your bag, in your hand that you just don't want to give him? That might be the thing that's keeping you from seeing that miracle of deliverance. You've, tried, you've worked it out your own self. Let him work it out. Put what you have in his hand. He loves you so much. Everything he does is for your good. Maybe you're doubting your faith or you have a talent that Jesus wants to use or a knowledge or a testimony. Whatever you have, give it to Jesus or a problem. Give him your home, your bank account, your strength, your voice, your low self-esteem, your pride, your sin, your failures. He can deliver you. Maybe you need to give him your heart so that you can... Be His. Maybe you need to accept Him as your Savior, as your shepherd. Pray with me and say, Dear Jesus, I believe in You. I believe You died on the cross for my sins. You suffered horribly. You shed Your blood to pay for me. Then You rose from the dead to give me a miracle of eternal life. Right now, Jesus, I ask You to forgive me for all my sins. Have mercy and compassion on me. I ask you to come into my life and be my Savior and make me a miracle. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. I want to shine for you. I want to exalt you so that people can see your miraculous power in my life. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, if you prayed that prayer, that's the greatest prayer of all, but you've got to have legs with that prayer. If you really are a miracle, you're going to exalt Jesus and you're going to follow Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus, then that prayer wasn't real. Father in heaven, as we uh, sing and we have, have this invitation, the invitation is what you're asking us to do, God, whatever it is. Give us the faith to do it, to put everything in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing, Steve. Stand with us as we sing, Only Trust Him. Come, every soul, by sin oppressed, there's mercy with all. Trusting in His Word.